come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. Welcome, listeners, to episode 219 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, I'm your tour guide here of David Garrett Jr., recording out of Columbus, Ohio. So this one here for you is going to be New Year, New Movie Number 16. So this one, the randomizer selected a Joe Bigos movie that I had not seen before of Almost Human. This is from 2013. So kind of actually also doubles as a Traverse of the Threes that I was doing for last year. And, you know, that episode's going to be looming here in the future anyways. But I digress on that. But that'll be one of the featured reviews. And I'm going to be pairing that up with Night Swim, the first 2024 film that I know in the horror genre that hit the cinema. So I went to see that at the Gateway Film Center when I found some time. And then for mini reviews here, I have a couple vampire films that are going to be covered. I have a foray through the fours as well as a screener. So I have From Dust Till Dawn, that is going to be the first mini-review. I have then House of Frankenstein, that's from 44, so that's a 4A through the 4s. The screener is Reflect. Then I also got to rewatch Kronos in the theater, so that's also going to be on this episode here. And then I'm going to end that out with a short film from Guillermo del Toro of Geometry, a.k.a. Geometria. I think that's kind of how you'd say that there. So that'll be all the mini-reviews that I have for you. So I don't think I have anything else I need to get you up to speed with here then for this intro. So what I will say then is thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. Journey with a Cinephile. And for my first mini-review is going to be from Dust Till Dawn. This is from 1996, directed by Robert Rodriguez. It was written by Quentin Tarantino, stars Harvey Keitel, George Clooney, and Juliette Lewis. This is an action-crime-horror film that is from a co-production of the United States and Mexico. Currently sitting on a 7.2 on IMDb and a 3.5 on Letterboxd. With our synopsis being, two criminals and their hostages unknowingly seek temporary refuge in a truck stop populated by vampires with chaotic results. So this is an interesting film for me because I recall watching this on the movie channels growing up quite a bit. 
It always seemed to be on. The crazy thing is, though I had no idea who Tarantino was until after, there were also actors here that I would grow to realize who they were and their significance. So this is my second watch with a critical eye, as I got to go see it at the Gateway Film Center for a series we're doing with vampires over the winter, so I thought that was kind of a fun, cool thing there. And this is one that has such an interesting setup. If you have no idea about the film coming into it, you get a Tarantino crime movie for the first part of it. We have Seth, who is in charge and trying to get them across the border, and he is portrayed by George Clooney. On the other side, you have his psychopathic brother of Richard, portrayed by Tarantino, who is sensitive if he's questioned. There's even more interesting dynamics here when you consider how Jacob, who is Harvey Keitel, interacts with Seth. He has the gall to call him out, but Seth sees he's right. That comes down to how you word it. He, it's just a hardened criminal who can be questioned by a former priest, and Seth knows that Jacob is right in what he's saying, so he helps see that logic. So this also has a dark tonal change when they get to the bar of the titty twister, which I also enjoy that aspect. I do have to say that we have characters that are over the top like Sex Machine, who's portrayed by Tom Savini, who has a gun on his groin. He wouldn't be able to shoot it unless there's like a mechanism that I'm unaware of, but that's part of the comedy that we get here. I'll be honest, it does hurt my rating a bit as it brings on that realism, but I do understand that we're working with a vampire film and not everything has to be grounded as there are other bits of comedy that do work. And when it comes to the dialogue, that's where I'm a fan. So the vampire part of this is what I like as well. I do find it interesting that they are different looks to them. We have like Santinonico, I think that's how you'd say that, Pandemonium, who's portrayed by Selma Hayek. She looks like a snake when she turns, which is interesting as that's what she's dancing with. Others look more monstrous, and you get even more of that when one show up later who look more like bats it also feels like vampires from all over are convening here at the night to feed there is a reveal at the end that explains things slightly and i absolutely love that so that brings me to the pacing which i think is great i never find myself bored here there are great ways to introduce our characters that feels natural and getting to know them even though you know that the gecko brothers are criminals you worry about them getting across the border we should be like Scott and want them to get caught, but there's a charisma that makes you question yourself there. So Scott would be portrayed by Ernest Liu. There's also an interesting duality to the film. There is never a lull, and I love the reveal at the end. I remember the first time seeing it and just thinking it was great. Now to move this to the acting, which is great and carries. I'm not sure if Clooney ever did horror movies before or even after this, but he has such a charismatic feel that I like Seth. There is something about him that while he's doing bad things that I had trouble hating him, Tarantino's also great. I love that we get a glimpse of what he thinks he sees and reveals that he's actually insane. I thought that worked well. Keitel is good, which is on par for the like for the course. Lewis is solid. Hayek was gorgeous, and she always has my jaw on the floor watching her dance scene. It's fun to see cameos from like Cheech Marin, Danny Trejo, Savini, Fred Williamson, John Saxon, Kelly Preston, Greg Nicotero, and John Hawks. The cast all turned in great performances across the board. That moves you next to the effects. Now, K&B did them, which is kind of interesting that Nicotero makes an appearance here. And I also believe that one of the other guys helped with coming up with the story, which would be Robert Kurtzman. So there's K-N-N. And then... I thought that the blood and gore looks good. It was done practical, so that makes sense. There is CGI that works in this. 
It was used when people are changing into vampires, which is fine. There are times where it isn't so good. There are flames that we see that look fake, and not all the vampires work either. I would say that overall, I'm more positive than negative. I will say that cinematography is great. This is shot well and helps to build tension and set up the great set pieces like the RV and the bar. The last thing to cover would be the music. I'll give a shout out to the mariachi band that is playing, because even though it's not my type of music, they do good in like fitting the vibe of this bar. I do have to say that there's some bit over-the-top cheese when they reveal themselves to be vampires with the instruments that they're using, but I digress. So in conclusion, I still enjoy this one and it holds up. I love that we get a Tarantino crime film to start out and it changes into a vampire film in the second half. It just moves so seamlessly. Not all the comedy works, but it doesn't ruin it. What carries this here is the acting. This is great from our leads and the cameos. The effects are good. There is CGI that doesn't, but not enough to ruin this. The music fits where it was needed. With all that, I think that this is a good film and would highly recommend it, even if you're not a horror fan. I will warn you that this does get bloody at times, but this is just a fun ride in my opinion. So my rating here from, from Dust Till Dawn is going to be a 9 out of 10. And for my second mini review is going to be one of my foray through the fours rewatches, and that's House of Frankenstein from 1944. This was directed by Early C. Keaton. Now this was written by Edward T. Lowe Jr., but then Kurt Sodomack also helped with the story. This stars Boris Karloff, Lon Chaney Jr., and J. Carol Nash. This is a fantasy horror sci-fi film that is from the United States. This is one of the universal classic like sequel type things that they were doing there. But this is sitting on a 6.2 on IMDb and a 3.0 on Letterboxd with the synopsis being a deranged scientist escapes from prison and recruits Dracula, Frankenstein's monster, and the Wolfman. So this was a movie that I sought out after college. I picked up a DVD set where it had all of the like, Dracula, Frankenstein, and Wolfman movies. Now, I did watch them straight through back then, and not being as versed in the history of horror cinema, I thought they were fine. I've now decided to give them a rewatch as part of my foray through the fours, at least this one, since I had seen it before already, so I didn't necessarily... It wouldn't be new. So, where I want to start is first with the continuity. As a guy who loves writing, it is something that's important for me with sequels. I thought this was good as they how they framed the story. We acknowledge that the events happened 15 years ago from the previous movie. We have Gustav... Neiman, portrayed by Karloff, who was a fellow scientist like Frankenstein, like they were colleagues. Knowledge was shared, so he's looking into it. In that time, Dracula has been killed, and in this one, he's brought back and portrayed by John Carradine, and then they also use the name Baron Latos for him as well. Now, the Wolfman and Frankenstein's monster are frozen in ice where we last left them in the previous movie. This is a fun crossover to incorporate all three. The problem is that I don't know if we utilize it as well as we could. Part of the issue is that this runs 70 minutes, so it rushes through at times, but it's still a fun movie. Something that impresses me here is usually an issue that I have with these Universal Classics is the formation of backstory. Having Gustav, who is the brain and his muscle, being Daniel escape from prison is good. should say Daniel is portrayed by Nash. It is convenient how they get out, but I'll let it slide. Gustav then enlists the aid of Dracula, aka Baron Latos, to deal with enemies is a fun idea. He does something familiar with Larry Talbot, portrayed by Cheney, and entices him by promising a cure to his curse once he's revived. Once Gustav finds Frankenstein's monster, and this one being portrayed by Glenn Strange, he wants to kind of see if he can actually get the true goal revealed and actually go through and make it work, as he also finds the notes from the previous Frankenstein. Again, this is rushed with the runtime, but I did like that they packed in quite a bit. The other thing with the story is that we have the sideshow being the cover for Gustav. There are people who realize he isn't Bruno, and that would be Professor Bruno Lampini, portrayed by George Zuko. 
As Bruno's been run out of these different towns in previous years, Gustav knows he can't stay anywhere for too long. The hometown of Frankenstein doesn't allow this sideshow and are even more mad when they realize someone is staying in that castle. Using this idea of the horror of the Wolfman and Frankenstein's monster is in the back of their heads, so they're out to stop anyone that goes there. So let me get over to the acting then. We have a star-studded group. Karloff is great as his villainous doctor. It is fitting that he used to be the monster, but now he's the scientist. And I what I mean is that in the OG and the sequel, he is the Frankenstein's monster. He is a great bad guy. Chaney is good as his tragic figure who doesn't want to change into a monster and kill, but can't stop it. He's even willing to die in the process. Nash was good as his hunchback to help Gustav. He's also a tragic, tragic, tragic figure as well. Then we also have, like I said, Carradine, we have Lionel Atwill, Zuko, and Strange are all good in their cameos. I'd also even say that having, like, Anne Gwynn, Peter Coe, Elena Verdugo, and the rest of the cast kind of round this out for what was needed. So all that's left is filmmaking. Thought this was well made. Cinematography doesn't do anything too out of the ordinary. We already are still early into cinema, but we still, how this was shot was good. I do think they captured the time in the past that it's set. That would be from the technology to like the horse-drawn carriages and whatnot. There's limited effects here and they're in camera. We do get a transformation of Dracula into a bat and Larry into a wolfman, but I did like seeing the look of the wolfman that we get here. And actually, I thought we weren't gonna get those transformation scenes, but they do give those to us. Oh, not the soundtrack fit for what was needed. Inclusion, I do like what this movie is doing. It works as a sequel to all three of the series since they're all incorporated in. My only issue is that this feels rushed. The acting is good and we have an amazing cast from our leads to the cameos of Universal Regulars. The effects were also solid. I like what we get with transformations there. This is well made other than that. Not the best movie out there, but I enjoy my time. Would recommend it to anyone who is out to watch Universal Classic Monsters films or fans of these actors or the era as well. So my rating for House of Frankenstein is going to be a 7 out of 10. And for my next mini review is actually going to be a screener of a movie that got its festival run last year, but it's getting its wide release here actually I think a few days ago, and that is Reflect. This, like I said, 2023, written and directed by Dana Kippel, who also co-stars in this with Grace Patterson and Dash Katz. This is a comedy sci-fi thriller according to IMDb. I know Letterboxd has this listed as horror. This is from the United States. It is currently sitting on an 8.7 on IMDb and a not enough ratings yet on Letterboxd, but I would say about a 2 to a 3 star movie over there. And the synopsis is five eclectic women journeys into the vortexes of Sedona where they are forced to confront the resurgence of their traumatic memories through shadow work. So this one they got the chance to see via screener thanks to Justin Cook. I'll admit, I originally wasn't going to check this one out because I didn't think that from everything in the press release that it was horror. It wasn't until digging a bit that I saw in Letterboxd that they are considered in the genre. So I decided to go ahead and give it a watch. Aside from that, I did come into this one blind just having read the synopsis. And so what I'm going to start then is that there isn't a lot to the story. It's more of a character study. This lingers on certain individuals longer than others, but I did like that before they disappear into this game, which is taking place in Sedona, that we do get backstory that gets revealed to help explain more about who each of these women are, and I can appreciate that. None of the five are, fought, like, they don't feel one-dimensional, which is good. I also want to include here that Kipple, who also, you know, co-wrote and, or wrote this and stars in this, co-stars, directed it. Man, that was difficult. Anyways, let me delve a bit deeper into the premise. If you know me, then I'm a big fan of things that involve time travel and multiple dimensions, which is what we're getting here. 
This latter concept makes sense to me, like more sense than religion. Now, here we have this game that is being put on for dimensional beings, and I get the idea that it's almost like a, they gamble on it. That is scary and interesting for me. I also like the concept of this game being that these women need to face their trauma to win. So we have like Katie, who is portrayed by Patterson. She is like the rich friend, and she struggles with perfection. There is Summer, who is also our co-writer and director, Kipple. She needs to realize that she's more beautiful than she is, and that includes inside and outside, and not to settle. Now, there is Liz, who's portrayed by Jadelyn Breyer. She has issues that stem from her sexuality versus the beliefs that she was raised under. We have Naya, who is portrayed by Ariana Brown. She needs to forgive her mother and realize how difficult things were for her growing up. There's also Annie, who is portrayed by Marissa Patterson. Now, she had some issues where she tried to kill herself in the past. So we have some heavy things going on here, and I think that works. So there's an elephant in the room that I need to address, as I don't necessarily think this falls into horror. This would be an adjacent movie only for the fact that I believe these women are disappearing completely. There are these shadow entities that are taking them if they don't come to terms with their trauma, and that's scary. There's also an allegory there about letting our past consume us without moving on. I think the consensus there would be this isn't horror, and I'd agree, and I'm only including it here still because it's considered that on Letterboxd. So let's go over to some positives that I have, and that would be the acting. Patterson, Kipple, Breyer, Patterson, and that would be... Marissa as well as Grace and Brown. They all feel like this group of friends who tolerate each other. I think that Katie likes everybody. Summer has issues with Liz because of her boyfriend. She isn't the only one that she should worry about though. This group of friends feels real to me. I also would say that I like Dash Katz, Chris Levine, Joe Flippioni, Maya Connell or Maya Nell. Campbell Crates. They're all great as these quirky people who are helping with this retreat. The acting here isn't great. It does fit the tone of the movie, so I'll credit that. All that's left in is filmmaking. The best thing here is the cinematography. I love the shots of nature as they're beautiful. I'd also pull in the effects for the anomalies when it comes to like the time-space stuff. We see like wormhole things in the sky. These are done with CGI because, I mean, there's no way you could do that practical. I do love that, and I'd also say that we don't get much in the way of effects outside of those things. It doesn't necessarily need them though either. Other than that, I thought the soundtrack fit for what was needed. We do have this creepy, distorted voice that we hear throughout that helps add the atmosphere. In conclusion, I thought this was a solid effort. It's not necessarily a movie for me though. I like the character study of this group of friends. The performances and dynamics were good. There isn't enough horror elements to fully work for me, though. It is more like the implications and certain things with the atmosphere. I will say the cinematography is beautiful, and I like what they do with the time-space effects. I don't recommend this to horror fans, but if you want a sci-fi comedy that is geared more towards following these women characters, then give this a watch. It is a quirky, independent movie for sure. So my rating here for Reflect is going to be a 6 out of 10. Now, this is one that I should be on like VOD and whatnot as of January 9th. So if you're interested in that, go over there and check this one out. So my next one is going to be one that I actually just covered recently, but I got to go to the Gateway Film Center to check this out, and that is Kronos. This is from 1992, written and directed by Guillermo del Toro, stars Frederico Lupi, Ron Perlman, and Claudio Brook. This is a drama fantasy horror thriller film that is from Mexico, currently sitting on a 6.7 on IMDb and a 3.4 on Letterboxd, or Synopsis. A mysterious device designed to provide its owner with eternal life resurfaces over 400 years, leaving a trail of destruction in its path. 
So this is one of our writer and director Del Toro's films that I hadn't had the chance to see in the theater yet. When I saw this was coming as part of an event at the Gateway Film Center over the winter of vampire movies, I made sure that I wanted to see this. So if you actually want to hear the mini-review that I did, it's going to be episode 213, which was Winter Year End number 18, which was VHS 85 and Curtains. Did the mini-review over on that one, but... I'm going to do kind of a briefer one here. That's What I want to say is what's interesting is that we have an early role from Ron Perlman as a thug for his uncle. The uncle is De La Garda, portrayed by Brooke, with Perlman is Angel. They're looking for an archangel statue that contains the Kronos machine. Before that, we hear the tale of an alchemist, portrayed by Mario Ivan Martinez, who created it and then passed away. It was thought lost from there, but De La Garda is dying and will do whatever he can to find it. Instead, it ends up in the hands of Jesus Gris, portrayed by Lupi, who is an older antiques dealer. There are subtle things that work here so well. We get to know Jesus, who lives with his wife of Mercedes, portrayed by Margarita Isabella, and granddaughter of Aurora, portrayed by Tamira Xantha. I think that's how you'd probably say her last name. Now, they're living a normal, meager life until this Kronos machine is found and how it changes things. This is a different variation on the vampire. Jesus steadily becomes addicted to using this machine that holds an insect. We never learn more about it from there, but the different disadvantages of the vampire are manifested, which is like not being able to go into the sun or his hunger for blood. It is interesting that Jesus finds this who doesn't need it. We do see that this sparks a romance between him and his wife as it makes him feel younger, but De La Guardia isn't a good man who knows how to, it works and desperately wants to find it. Now, I liked how this all gets presented without going over the top. Something I'll say here is that you can tell this is lower budget. I don't think it's an issue though. The cinematography is good. The effects are practical aside from the inner workings of the machine. I don't know any other way that you could do it. The effects here are also limited. We don't need a lot to convey the story, which is good. Something else you could say is it's subtle. I mean, I've already said that earlier, but like that's something I really kind of want to harp on. I'd also say that the acting is good across the board. Loopy is the bright spot here with Perlman playing a quirky role as his muscle, and it's kind of funny to see where he would go as he gets older. I also find Brooke to be a good villain. He's this guy who has a lot of money and thinks that things should go his way. I'd also say that Xantha was also adorable. So this is what I'd recommend to someone who loves Del Toro and is out to see his filmography because this is a good way to see how he started I think this is his feature film debut. But I'll say that this is a different variation on the vampire lore, so that's an interesting way to kind of look at this as well. So my rating after like my third rewatch here, or my third watch of Kronos is going to be an 8 out of 10. And my last mini review here is actually going to be a short. I got to see this right before Kronos started because... I'll get into that in a second, but it's going to be Geometria or Geometry. This is from 1987, written and directed by Guillermo del Toro. Stars Fernando Garcia Marin, Guadalupe del Toro, and Napo. So this is a short horror thriller that is from Mexico. It is currently sitting on a 6.5 on IMDb and a 3.4 on Letterboxd, where our synopsis being... A boy is tired of failing geometry, so he summons a demon. So this is a short that I didn't know existed. I went to see Kronos, as I was saying, at the Gateway Film Center, and this was shown before. I didn't even realize it until settling in that this is one of the first things that Del Toro made, so it's intriguing to me as a fan of his work. There isn't much more that I can say outside of that synopsis, as this runs nine minutes, and it starts with the mother being portrayed by Del Toro's actual real mother. So Guadalupe is the mother to Guillermo. Now, she tells her son that he needs to study for his geometry test. 
the son is played by Marin, and he tells his mother that he has a plan. So where I want to start with my recap and breakdown is that despite how low budget this is, you can tell Del Toro's talent. I love the stinger at the end of the short as it made me laugh audibly in the theater. What is funny about it is, without spoiling it, is that it's in line with the concept of the short in general. Something else that impressed me were the effects. You can tell that this wasn't a lot of money available to this. So there's an homage to the exorcist with how the demon that shows up looks. And actually something interesting that I'm pretty sure that the guy behind the exorcist is effects could be wrong. I think it's Dean Smith or something along those lines. I guess Del Toro actually worked under him, so it's kind of interesting that this pays homage to him with that. So this demon's name is Linda B, which I'm assuming is Linda Blair, is what they're kind of referencing there. And that is portrayed by Rodrigo Mora. And the makeup matches the look of Linda when she was done up as Reagan as a demon or a possessed person. Now there's another entity that shows up that is gross looking. That is portrayed by Napo which I guess his real name is Francisco Napo Sanchez. But that one was gross looking, as I was saying. There's blood in a attack scene that looked good to me. I was impressed there. I should say that the rest of the filmmaking is fine. You can see the talents that Del Toro has, and it isn't shocking to see where he is now. I'll finish out then with the acting here to say that no one is great, but there's like an amateur effort that I won't harp too much, but there are elements of comedy, so the performances reflect that. And I would say that in conclusion, this is a fun short to watch and i had a lot of i had a blast here it isn't the best work you'll see from del toro but like it's fun to see where he started and what he would become now the effects were good for the budget there is a creepy feel there i do love the premise and how things play out and it made me laugh the acting isn't great but i'm also not going to harp on it either but i'll recommend this to fans of del toro if you're out to see his filmography so my rating for this short of Geometria or geometry is going to be a 7 out of 10. So I'm going to go ahead and do that and get you over to the trailer of my first featured review since it's all I have here for mini reviews. This blue light explodes in front of me and it was making this ear piercing noise. It has now been five days since the disappearance of Mark Fisher. You see that? Is that a body? Where are we? I need to get to Patton. Dude, did you hear? What? About the murders. No! I think it has to do with Mark. Seth, Mark is dead. Would you listen to me, please? Mark is coming back! This is private property. What are you doing in my house? Wait! Something took Mark. I'm different now. This isn't gonna turn into another problem like last time, is it? Where are you, Mark? I'm coming to get you. For my first featured review here is going to be Almost Human. This is from 2013. It was written and directed by, I think you say his name, Joe Begos. 
This is starring Graham Skipper, Josh Ethier, and Vanessa Lee, while also featuring Susan T. Travers, Anthony Amarell III, Michael A. La Cicero, Jeremy Furtado, Jamie Tennille, Chuck Dotry, Chris Avedesi, I think that's how you'd say that, David Langill, John Palmer, Andre Bordreau, Eric Bergman, Mark O'Leary, Jeffrey Phillips, John Razzo, and Caitlin Menard. This is a horror sci-fi thriller film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 4.7 on IMDb and a 2.7 on Letterboxd with our synopsis being Mark Fisher disappeared from his home in a brilliant flash of blue light almost two years ago. His friend Seth Hampton was the last person to see him alive. Now a string of grisly violent murders leads them to believe that Mark is back and something is evil inside of him. So it's a movie that I learned about after seeing our writer and director of Begos's films VFW and Bliss. He uses the same actors in both and he's a filmmaker that I pretty much whatever he does I will watch and that included a couple years ago when he did Christmas Bloody Christmas and this was picked up on the randomizer for my segment on Journey with a Cinephile which made me excited to visit this blind spot in his filmography. So before I get to the movie itself, let me do some featured notes, and I'll start with Begos. He has done five films and one short in this role. I've seen four of his movies. Including this, I've seen Christmas, Bloody Christmas, VFW, and Bliss. The only one I haven't as of yet is The Mind's Eye. Then as a writer, he has four movies and one short. The only one of the previous that he didn't write was VFW, so Mind's Eye is the only one that I haven't seen from there. And then moving to our cast, I'll start with Skipper. He has done 23 films and four shorts. I've seen eight works with him in it. 17 things he's done are in horror. I've seen Bliss, Christmas, Bloody Christmas, VFW, and Suitable Flesh, just to name a few. The top three with him that I haven't seen in genre are Beyond the Gates, Downrange, and Carnage Park. Then to his co-star of Ethier, he's done 10 movies and three shorts. I've seen five works with him in it. He has done eight in horror. I've seen Bliss, Christmas, Bloody Christmas, VFW, Digging Up the Marrow, and now this. I have not seen Beyond the Gates, The Mind's Eye, or Some Kind of Hate. And then the last person I'm going to look at here is Lee. She has been in seven movies. I've only ever seen this. She has five other ones in horror with You Can't Kill Stephen King, Self Storage, The Last Halloween, and The Muse. Alright, so for this movie we start in October of 1987 with Seth driving. He is hearing weird sounds and he's freaked out. He arrives to his friend Mark's house. should say Seth is portrayed by Graham Skipper and then Mark by Ethier. Now, he bangs on the door to be let in. Mark asks where their other friend is because he was supposed to be coming over together, but Seth says a blue light took him out of the vehicle. Mark doesn't believe it and wants to go look for him, thinking that his friend just kind of abandoned their other buddy in the middle of the road, like out in the woods. So this commotion wakes up Mark's girlfriend of Jen Craven, portrayed by Lee. They try to make sense of what is going on when the power goes out. Mark goes into a trance, heads outside, and then disappears in a blue light as well. So then this shifts two years into the future. What I like here is that we're given different news broadcasts to fill in the backstory of what's happened during that time. We then shift over to Seth, who is struggling since everything went down. He gets bloody noses and needs to go see a doctor, and he's on medication. This has affected him at work, where he's on the verge of losing his job. He also was cleared of being involved in the disappearances of his two friends, but the people around town still think that he's involved, so they kind of give him like side-eye looks. And the other thing is being accused of something like that would also mess with your head. We also get to see how Jen has coped. She has moved on and is now engaged to Clyde Dutton, who is portrayed by Amaral. 
She is working as a server and learns that her hours are being cut. I get the idea there's not a lot of work around this town, so there isn't much more that she can do here. I will point out that this takes place in Maine. That makes things problematic when Seth comes in to talk to her as both have bad feelings about these power outages that are happening like they did a couple years ago. That's when we're following two hunters that are in the woods. They find Mark lying on the ground. He is naked and covered in a gooey substance. He gets up and attacks both of them. He takes their gun as well as clothes. This just starts the rampage like the synopsis said. He seems to be heading back to his hometown. There is something off about Mark and what his goal is if he can get back to his friends and ex-girlfriend. And it has world-ending implications. So I think that's where I'll leave my recap introduction to the story. And where I want to start is that this is Begos's feature film debut. He did a couple of shorts ahead of this, but this is a good first film to play my hand. I like what we're doing here with a potential alien invasion. It does feel like it's borrowing from things like Fire in the Sky. That isn't something I mean as a slight, as they're using the same basic idea of alien abduction. It doesn't follow the same concept aside from that, though, with kind of how things play out here. So this starts off in an interesting way though. We have Seth freaking out about their friend disappearing. What I like here is that we don't necessarily know if what he's saying is real. There is a creepy voice that we heard, but I could take that as Seth just having mental illness. So we're kind of hearing what he is just as a viewer to kind of make everything more creepy. We see that what he's saying is real though. Then following up with these news stories and saying that similar events are happening, that sets the stage as well and then gets us up to speed with how everything is, starts to unfold. From there, we have a slasher of sorts type of movie. We saw Mark disappear and then he's back. It sets the stage and as I was saying, showing that in the two years since he's been gone is that Jen is now engaged to someone else. It is interesting there because since then, Seth has almost pretty much lost his mind. Part of that is we see he's been accused of being a part of the two disappearances from the night that we saw. That would make me feel bad, especially since they were best friends. He also had something happen to him that has affected on his health. I did like that and it helps that I'm a fan of Skipper. I just thought his performance was good for early in his career. Now let's take this to the body snatching narrative that we're kind of getting here. That is also classic when you're using aliens as the villain. I like the fact that we get to see Mark before he changes. I'll credit Ethier here too. I know he and Skipper are Bagos regulars so it's fun to see them appearing in something that he did over 10 years ago. When he comes back, he's emotionless and acting differently than when we saw him before he disappeared. This is also where the slasher elements come in. He goes on a murder spree to get back to his hometown as well as to Seth and Jen. He is also turning others, which again, is kind of a different take on like Invasion of the Body Snatchers or It Came From Outer Space. It's not necessarily a new idea, but I like the different take that we're using here. That sets it apart to me when you're dealing with these type of alien movies because you don't normally turn it into a slasher film. Let's move from the story then to go over to the rest of the acting. I've already said how good Skipper and Ethier were. I thought that Lee was also good. I do like seeing that she's moved on even though Seth hasn't. I'd also say that Travers, Los Asiro, Tanil, and the rest of the cast kind of rounded us out for what was needed. There is an amateur feel to all of the acting, but it's kind of expected with the budget they're working with here, and I don't necessarily mean that as a slight. All that's left in his filmmaking. Something that you can tell from this being early in Begos' career is how he frames shots. Cinematography is good. I could tell that he'd go on to make things that he has. The effects were also solid. They were done practically, and I'm a huge fan of that. This works as a slasher in that respect. Seeing the attack scenes as well as the after effects were good. There's a great head smash. Other than that, I thought the soundtrack fit for what was needed. So a little bit of trivia from the IMDb page. 
And when Mark returns, he is initially in Derry, Maine. This is a reference to the fictional town used by Stephen King, most notably in It. The credits are eight minutes long. As the director stated, the reason for this was to get this to feature length for certain festival circuits. There is an extra scene after the credits. The script was written in six weeks. The bulk of this was lit with practical lights, shot in 18 days, and the character of Mark Fisher was written especially for Ethier to play. So in conclusion, this is a great low-budget start to Bagos' career. I like that we have this take on the body snatching narrative that turns into a slasher of sorts. There are vibes of fire in the sky with how Mark disappears, but I also like seeing the effects it has on Seth and Jen. This is made well enough for the budget. The effects were good. They were done practically, which I'm always a fan of. Cinematography and framing are as well. It does capture the small town feel as well as the woods that are close. If you're a fan of these type of movies or of... Bagos's filmography, I'd give this one a go. So my rating here for Almost Human was an 8 out of 10. Not going to do a spoiler section. don't necessarily think there's anything else I need to delve into here. So let me get you over to the trailer of my second featured review. Fixing up the pool. Stop. They said it hadn't been used in 15 years. Maybe they weren't pool people. This is not for the kids. Used to be scared of pools. Cider! Come on, cider! Getting a vibe here. Do you have a boyfriend? No. Hey, someone's coming over in a minute. <laughs> Keep your mouth shut. Micah. You need to say something back. Ronan, Marco. Why aren't you saying anything? My kids have seen things, and I'm worried something is happening to my husband. Dad? I've been looking for you. There has to be some way to stop this. Marco. And for my second featured review here is going to be Night Swim. This is from 2024, written and directed by Bryce McGuire. This is starring Wyatt Russell, Carrie Condon, and Amelie Hoferly. 
And then also featuring Gavin Warren, Jody Long, Eddie Martinez, Elijah J. Roberts, Runuma Pathaki, Ben Sinclair, Ellie Azura, Azan Dalabeva, Josiah Langanoy, Avin Upada, Liz Parkinson, Mike Avery, Eleanor T. Thorat, Bianca Desmo, and Paige Van Conat. Should also say that Rod Blackhurst also helped out with writing this. But this is a horror thriller film that is from a co-production of the United States, United Kingdom, and Australia. This is currently sitting on a 5.0 on IMDb and a 2.0 on Letterboxd or Synopsis. A this synopsis is not great. A woman swimming in her pool at night is terrorized by an evil spirit. Yeah, sure, we'll roll with that one. But this is a movie that I wanted to see when I saw that this was going to be like the first 2024 release from horror in the theater for the year. Now, what I didn't realize until settling in was that this was a Blumhouse film. They can be hit or miss for me. Now, what worked, though, was seeing that this featured Russell and Condon, as I'm a fan of both of them, as... So I've seen them in some stuff, which I will get into here shortly as I get over to some featured notes about some of these key people, as this was directed by McGuire, who has done four films and four shorts. This is the first of his that I've seen. All are in horror with Unfollowed, Bad Bloom, and Horror Anthology Volume 1. I've not heard of any of these. He also wrote the screenplay, as he's done this five times for movies and five times for shorts. He also wrote the upcoming Imaginary and Baghead. I think those are both going to be Blumhouse films. We're also doing Unfollowed and Horror Anthology Volume 1. Only thing that I've seen is this one here. Then there's another writer's I said of Black Hearse. He has done four films and three shorts. First I've seen of his. Three of his stuff are in Horror with this, Horror Anthology Volume 1, and Baby Girl. Let's then take this to the cast. I'll start with Russell. He has 26 films and three shorts. I've seen six things with him in it. Not in horror, I've seen 22 Jump Street, The Falcon and Winter Soldier, and This is 40. In horror, he's done four, and I've seen two. I've seen this and Overlord. I have not seen We Are What We Are and At the Devil's Door. Then his co-star of Condon has 28 movies and four shorts. I've seen nine of her works, including Avengers Infinity War, Endgame, and Spider-Man Homecoming. I think she does the voice for the like system in Iron Man's armor, but I, I would have to double-check that. Now, she did two in horror with this and Bad Samaritan, which I've seen both of these. Then last will be Hofurly. She has three films and three shorts. I've only ever seen this. Now, she has one other in genre with Scary Story. I think it's from 2021. Not heard of it. She was also in the new Hunger Games movie from what I was looking at. So I believe this starts off in 1997. There is Rebecca, portrayed by Dala Bayeva, who is in bed. She hears something outside and looks out the window to see a toy boat moving around their swimming pool. She has a brother of Tommy, portrayed by Laganoy, who is sick. He has a hospital bed at home. I'll also include that their mother is Kay, portrayed by Long. Rebecca goes down to the pool to get the boat out with a net, but ends up falling in. Something pulls her under and she disappears. We then shift to the present. Now, there's a family that their last name is the Wallers are looking for a new house. There is Ray, portrayed by Russell, who is a former baseball player. He is dealing with multiple sclerosis, so they're trying to get closer to his doctors and specialists. His wife is Eve, portrayed by Condon, and she's finishing up her degree to be a teacher. They've also got a position in the front office of a nearby school, so that also is something they're trying to figure out there. Now, they have two kids. There is Izzy, portrayed by Hofurley, and then 
Elliot portrayed by Warren. Now, she is more athletic and just seems to fit in with her peers. Elliot has a harder time, and he's trying to play baseball like his dad as kind of a way to kind of find his own sort of area or like what he should fit into. Now, they are shown a house that is too much like a hospital. When they're leaving, they see the one that we saw from the beginning. It has fallen a bit into disrepair and a bit outdated, and the pool is nasty. Nobody's been taking care of that. That is something that has draws Ray to it. He wants to consider it over the other one, and this sparks a talk between him and Eve. She is willing to buy it, because I think they were actually looking to rent at first, but she needs to know that he's given up his fight to get back to the majors, and that they're going to put down roots, and he agrees that's what he wants as well. Things seem to go well for that decision. They clean up and learn that it is rare, their pool. There is an underground water source that fills it up. Now, Ray sees it and uses it as water therapy. The kids love it, as does Eve. It also gives them an excuse to invite their new neighbors, friends, and teammates over for a housewarming party. Now, this does create problems, though. Eve thinks that she sees something out of the corner of her eye when she's doing a night swim. So, I mean, that could be what they're getting at for the synopsis but there that that's one scene but there's an incident at their party and this pool might harbor dark secrets that plunge this family into peril so that's only my recap introduction to the story and i just want to start by saying that this has a good setup we start with a creepy scene that puts children into peril not something i necessarily expected from a blumhouse pg-13 rated horror movie i do know that is something that is an apprehension of viewers. I'll say that I thought this was, what it does is fine. It's a bit generic to have Haunted House aspect to it, but I'll get into what worked for me from there. Now that I've set that up, I don't mind the Haunted House setup that we're getting here. The house itself isn't necessarily haunted. It's technically isn't even the pool that is either. There were these natural springs that were giving water to the pool that are haunted. It has healing properties. What I like is that it entices those that are in need. The water will grant the user a wish, but it requires a sacrifice. That is something else that I can work with. We get an idea that Ray's wish would be. I'll give a bit of a spoiler here that he's the one being targeted by this entity. It is also good because he's a big guy. He comes off that he could be a baseball player with that. It is also scary that when he becomes possessed due to his size, I'll credit Russell here that he has natural charisma that works for the role that he's taken on here. So there's another aspect here where Eve has given up a lot for Ray's career. We get a sad story that involves the birth of Izzy. It hasn't been until the children getting older and not needing her as much that Eve has been able to focus on herself more. There's also Ray's diagnosis that is aiding in that as well. I did like this element adding more to the story. She needs assurances from Ray that if they're going to agree to certain things, I'll credit Condon here as well. I thought she was solid as she's our voice of reason as well as our lead to figure out what is happening. The last bit that I want to explore would be with the children. Izzy has a much easier time transitioning to new schools, and I think they've been doing it a lot. And I also think she's just more natural at doing things than Elliot. She makes friends, joins the swim team, and then we have Ronan, who's portrayed by Roberts, is interested in her, and he's kind of like the like good-looking guy around school. Now, Elliot, on the other hand, struggles. He isn't as athletic, where that just comes easier to his sister. I also get the idea that he's awkward. This entity targets him as an easier prey, which adds tension. Again, I'm a fan when you put children in peril as it builds tension easier. 
So that should be enough for the story. So let's go over to the acting. I've already said that Russell and Condon are good. I thought that Hofurley and Warren were solid as their children. I do like Long as the mother from the family in the beginning. We come back to that later. And she also plays as a creepy role as we learn more about the curse. Eddie Martinez is solid as a baseball coach. He's in all that Ray's son is on his team with him being the celebrity that he is. Other than that, Roberts and the rest of the cast rounded this off for what was needed. So then before I do some trivia, I'll finish out with filmmaking. I thought this was shot well. The cinematography and framing do interesting things. One of which is when someone is in the pool, we are seeing things as if they were swimming. So, you know, what would be level is turned on its side and then it kind of flips to the other way as you would when you're swimming. So it's something I liked. Going along with this, there are supernatural things that are happening that are reminiscent of like the bathtub scene in A Nightmare on Elm Street. There's some added fear of characters drowning. I do think that it loses some realism with how long they're underwater, but I can play through. Go over to the effects. I thought the look of the entity was creepy. My only issue there is that I want to learn more. I don't think this needs a sequel, but if they did, that should be a way to go. Or you could even do a prequel. That would be more into the lore. This was good to not give too much information as I don't think a lot is necessarily known. Sometimes I think that we get too much of an information dump that it feels a little bit forced. So there is CGI that wasn't great. It doesn't ruin it though either. Other than that, the soundtrack fit for what was needed. I did like the sound design where it sounds like other people to them to get to the pool and everything. So that was creepy. And then for the trivia here, the real life house location used for the family home on screen doesn't actually fully connect to the garage. So the pool can be seen from the front yard. A facade was added to make it look like one full structure and to block the pool from the view of the house. Kind of cool. The swim school that Izzy is asked to join is called the Harold Holt Swimming School. Harold Holt was the 17th Prime Minister of Australia who disappeared, presumed drowned while swimming. Oh, that's kind of a fun fact. In 2018, director Rod Blackhurst and writer Bryce McGuire sold a feature-length adaptation of their short film Night Swim about a woman terrorizing her pool by an evil spirit to James Wan's atomic monster. McGuire is set to direct, so that's what we're getting here. And that kind of explains how it's broken down and everything. And I think the synopsis might actually be from that short. So in conclusion, this movie is fine. We are getting a subgenre that almost everything has been done already. What I like here is using a swimming pool since that raises tension with the potential to drown. I did like the lore that we're given. This is a natural spring that is haunted by something. We learn only that an earlier character knows about the lore. The acting from the two leads is good. The rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed. I'd say this is well made. Things they do with the cinematography and framing are good. I like that this has, or I like the look of the entity. I just want to know more about it though. I recommend this to fans of Blumhouse as I thought this was a decent PG-13 horror film. This is one for fans of children and peril movies as well. So my rating for Night Swim is going to be a 7 out of 10. Not going to do a spoiler section here either. So let me get you over to one last break before I close out the show. And welcome back one last time here. And just to kind of go through my social medias and stuff... If you'd like to send me an email, you can send that at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. You can send me any sort of feedback or if you have any questions or anything, go ahead and shoot them there and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Or if you want to send me any screener links or anything like that, anything podcast related, you can send it via that way. If you'd like to read any of the written reviews, I'll direct you to Reviews of the Dead and that's horrorreview.webnode.com. If you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook, I'm David Michigan Garrett Jr. On Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. 
On Instagram, I'm DavidOSU87. On Threads, I'm DavidOSU87. And then Journey with a Cinephile has its own Instagram at Journey with a Cinephile, all one word. Now, all of these ones I will be sharing like my ratings on, whatnot. I know for Letterboxd, all of the reviews are going to be for horror and non-horror alike. Instagram, I will be sharing over there is my different like posters and everything for things that I'm reviewing. My personal account, you might see some personal pictures every now and then if I can remember to take them. And then, you know, kind of same thing for Threads and then Journey with a Cinephile is going to be more of just kind of posting podcast related different stuff over there. And I'll also direct you to the Nightclub Discord channel as I have a little section over there where we have some good conversations. I post all of my reviews and any new podcast episodes or some of the things I'm watching when I actually have time to post that. So keep an eye out over there and I'll have the link for that and everything else in the show notes there. And then I'm also going to direct you, if a way that you can actually listen to the show is going to be through the Pod Nation TV. This is a streaming service and everything like that. There will be a link in the blog posts for all of my episodes, so if you'd like to listen to it that way. It's kind of a cool little thing. You can definitely do that through like Roku TV, and there's some other apps for it as well. Just as another way for you to consume this podcast if you decide to. There's also a lot of other great shows that are on that network as well. And for the next episode, it's going to be another of my new year, new movie. And it's going to be the randomizer selected. And actually, Jamie was the one that got to press the button. So she was very excited about that. Wanted to make sure that I gave her credit for it here. And the number that was selected when she pressed the button was Red, White, and Blue. This is an interesting horror film that I believe is from the early 2010s. It might even be 2010. Something along those lines. But that'll be one of the featured reviews. And then I'm also going to be watching a screener of Project Dorothy. I believe if memory serves this. I know it has... Tim Zahn, I think that's his name. He's an old harbinger from Cabin in the Woods. And I also believe that Danielle Harris is also appearing in it. She hasn't showed up for what part I've actually already watched of that. But Project Dorothy will be the other featured review on there. That's going to be a 2024 screener that I'm watching. And I know I also got to go see a couple movies at the Gateway Film Center. So those will be some of the mini reviews. I'm also going to knock out another foray through the fours. That's going to be, I believe, The Invisible Man's Revenge. Other than that, I'll have some more stuff that I'll be tacking on there as mini-reviews and whatnot as I work through some stuff. And I also have some mini-reviews on the horizon for you. I just kind of kind of get everything. I'm almost completely caught up. That's kind of what I'm trying to get at here. So I don't think there's anything else I need to do for this outro. So what I will say is thank you so much for listening, whatever you do today. Hope you're safe and doing. Have a great time out there. This is your tour guide of David Garrett Jr. And I am signing off. It had been a wonderful evening. And what I needed now to give it the perfect ending. <laughs>